When uh, my boys were younger, I, I coached football for the Waterloo Warhawks, and it was so much fun uh, coaching football with these little guys. Some of you guys know that I did that. Um, it's a little bit like, it's a little bit like um, playing chess with real-life pieces. Because um, when kids are really little, they let the coaches on the field, which is important because sometimes, you know, little Timmy's facing the wrong way, and you've got to go over and physically turn him around and point him, no, actually, we're going this way. And so coach football, and, uh, and uh, I, I really enjoyed it. And one of the things about football is, that, and we're teaching children, is it's a very complicated game. You've got all these plays. You've got a game plan. You have to, kids have to memorize all these plays and where they're supposed to go and where all the arrows are pointing. And so what you realize when you're, as a coach is you really, you really don't need to outsmart the other coach on the other side of the sidelines. You really just have to fool a 10-year-old. And if you can fool a 10-year-old, your team is going to do well. And I discovered that really early on in my coaching. And so it required doing this thing for those of you who are football fans, and it's called calling an audible. So you see what's going on. Yes, you've practiced things all week. Yes, you have a strategy. Yes, you have a playbook. But you look in, at what's in front of you, and you just adjust on the fly. So I absolutely loved that. So we had this one play that we would always do, and I made another play that looked exactly like it, only instead of running the ball, it was a pass, but it looked exactly the same. Got to fool the 10-year-olds. And I just added the word Iron Man to it. So when you, saw, when you heard the word Iron Man, that meant do the exact same thing over again, only this time pass it. So we'd score all kinds of touchdowns, and Isaiah had lots of fun as we played, and, and uh, I'd be in the, hu- in the huddle and call the Iron Man play, and the kids would get all excited. Oh, we're going to fool him. Well, there's this show on TV called All or Nothing. It's a behind the scenes of the NFL. Same thing, only it's infinitely more complicated. They're trying to, not only they're not trying to fool the 10-year-olds on the field, they're trying to out, out, outsmart, uh, you know, it, the other coaches, the other teams. It's all about seeing and adapting, this constant adapting. We've been studying Proverbs as a church, the beginning of Proverbs anyways, to kind of give us a framework for how to understand all of the Proverbs. And Proverbs sounds a lot like looking and seeing and adapting, looking at what's in front of you and then choosing wisdom. And not just saying, I got my playbook, these are my plays, and this is how I approach absolutely everything in life and expecting the world to conform to our playbook. But it's like, it's wisdom. Now, wisdom as a the scriptures unfold. We were kind of talking about this last week. It's the ability to handle the complexities and the nuances in life, but do it in a way that God would call wise and loving and good and true. Now, the gospel tells us that Jesus Christ was wise and loving and good and true. He was all those things to perfection. And then in his perfect life and his atoning death, he actually gives us his perfect track record. His perfect track record of obedience, his perfect track record of wisdom. In other words, even though day to day the Christian experience is not that we are Jesus Christ personified, what the gospel announces for the Christian is before God we're declared righteous and Christ's perfect track record has been given to us. And so united to him now, by grace, what we desire is to imitate his character because to do so is to align with the God who created us as image bearers. It is to align and to become, be congruent with what God intended in the first place. Now, if you're exploring Christian faith this morning and you're considering Christian faith, before I read this text and unpack it, here's something very important that you need to know. And it's that Jesus Christ is not primarily our moral example. 
He is primarily our Savior. And it is precisely because he is primarily our Savior that he has saved us in grace, that as Christians we desire his moral example, and we endeavor to be imitators of his moral example. What you need to understand about Christian faith before I unpack this wisdom literature, or for you to be able to understand any wisdom literature, is that we desire to do this, live wisely, live lovingly, and it's all about imitation, not earning. So if you're here this morning exploring Christian faith, that is fundamental, that is core to understanding why it is that we would choose to live this way. We're not doing it so that God looks down and says, you've been wise, I accept you. We're already accepted, and therefore we desire the wise guidance of his wisdom because of his great grace. So today we're going to read Proverbs chapter 8. And the beginning of Proverbs, kind of around the first nine verses, most commentators, uh, Hebrew commentators will tell you that the first nine chapters, I'm sorry, of Proverbs, it's an introduction. And then you have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of little Proverbs, and they all work the same way. Do this and it'll be good. Do that, it'll be bad. Do this, it'll work out well for you. Do that, it won't. And you've got hundreds and hundreds of those. And then really what, what we're wanting to do is recognize that the beginning of Proverbs, these first nine chapters, we've kind of been exploring them. It's getting us to think about our appetites, whether or not we even have an appetite for wisdom, because that's how Proverbs was kind of constructed, so that you can actually look at the rest of the Proverbs and read them uh, and look for the nuances and and essentially desire the wise guidance of of God. Proverbs chapter 8, starting in verse 1. Does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights beside the way, at the crossroads, she takes her stand beside the gates in front of the town, at the entrance of the portals, she cries aloud. To you, O men, I call, and my cry is to the children of man. O simple ones, learn prudence. O fools, learn sense. Hear, for I will speak noble things, and from my lips will come what is right. For my mouth will utter truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are righteous. There is nothing twisted or crooked in them. They're all straight to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. Take my instruction instead of silver and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than jewels and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence and I find knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil, pride and arrogance in the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. I have counsel and sound wisdom. I have insight. I have strength. By me, kings reign and rulers decree what is just. By me, princes rule and nobles all who govern justly. I love those who love me and those who seek me diligently find me. Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, even fine gold. And my yield is better than choice silver. I walk in the way of righteousness and the paths of justice, granting an inheritance to those who love me and filling their treasuries. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, his first acts of old. Ages ago I was set up at first, before the beginning of the earth, when there were no depths I was brought forth, when there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills I was brought forth, before he had made the earth with its fields, And the fruit of the dust of the world, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, and when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned the sea its limit, 
so that the waters might not transgress his command when he marked out the foundations of the earth when I was, I was beside him like a master workman. I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. This is God's word. As we unpack this text this morning, we're going to kind of ask the scripture three questions. What does wisdom look like? What does wisdom require? And how is wisdom formed? Well, first, firstly, what does wisdom look like? Well, it looks like the ability to discern what's needed and not default to what's natural. And as you unpack some of the language that's here, for example, if you read verses 12 through 16, you're going to find there's these descriptive words and they keep coming up. If you read all 31 chap- uh, chapters in Proverbs, these words keep coming up. Right? You find them in verse 14. Prudence, knowledge, discretion, insight. Hebrew commentators all agree that these words are all provoking us to consider something. When you look at something, do you see what's really going on? That's what those words mean. I mean, whether it's something in, in your life, a relationship situation, any situation you're facing in your life that requires wisdom... What, this, is, what these, this kind of language is provoking is, do I actually see what's going on? There's this little golf course out on Iron Needles. It's, it's like this tiny little thing by the mall, and I, we always drive by it. And last summer, we decided to take uh, Nigel there. And uh, I kind of looked at it, and I just judged it from the street. Now, ah, this is the little thing. It looks like a parking lot. I'm going to show up with a pitching wedge and a putter. So I just showed up with my pitching wedge and my putter. I'm like, ah, every, yard, every hole is probably 50 yards. So we get there, and most of the holes were around 50 yards. But then you get to a hole, 89 yards, 90 yards, 110 yards. Well, I only brought one club. And it would be great if I could use uh, just one club for every shot. And the problem is you can't use one club for every shot. You see, Proverbs is saying you're not going to go through life with one club. You, you are going to have to... Not just show up with your game plan and just approach everything with what's most natural to you. Wisdom, the wisdom of God, is, is being able to engage in situations and circumstance with nuance. Look at, look at Jesus as, as an example, at the incredible nuance in the life of Jesus. To this person, he speaks really strongly. To this person, he speaks really softly. Right? What is going on? What, how, how is Jesus constantly adjusting and operating in the, in the wisdom of God and the love of God? That's what wisdom is. It's that, it's that nuance. Now, this prudence, this knowledge, this discretion and insight, these words provoking us to, to wonder, um, you know, what, what's the most loving and wise thing to do in a situation and not just kind of broad brush everything? Um, you know how, for example, kids will broad brush situations. And we can all be like kids, right? A, kid can, a, a child cannot be doing well in school. And you say, hey, little Timmy, how come you're struggling in this class? And he says, the teacher hates me. Really? Is that why? Is that really what's going on? Oh, he's the worst. He just hates kids. Is that really what's going on? Because how many of us have heard kids say that? So many kids have said that. Is the education system just loaded with teachers that wake up in the morning going, <laughs> I don't know. I'm not sure. Maybe you're struggling in this class because you have a master's degree in Minecraft and you're working on your PhD in Fortnite. That could be why. There could be other reasons. But to a little child, this is, this is why. And, and if we don't grow out of that kind of broad brushing, we can approach life like that. You've talked to grown adults who constantly have relationships kind of disintegrate around them. Some of us have had that in our, 
in our lives. Some of us are in that right now. Right? Why is it that all my family relationships are strained or my friendships are strained or, 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 or I seem to only be in relationship with people for so long and then the relationship stalls out? Why is that? Well, people, I mean, most, I'm not like most people. I don't know, maybe that's not the reason. None of us are like most people. What, wisdom and insight and looking with nuance and love and humility and these kinds of things. That God asks us to kind of, you know, kind of consider. It can, it could look like that. Uh, Proverbs is asking us to, to, provoking us to consider this. You can do this um, as grown adults. I remember uh, because it's easier, it's easier to just kind of create a template for how you relate to situations and then continually operating according to what's natural to you. But it may not be the most wise thing. That's what Proverbs is getting the readers to to consider. For example. Um, I worked for an organization once, and we brought in this large firm from Alberta, and they would do these, these kind of profiles where you take the staff through different things, consider your cognitive traits and other kind of aspects to personality and work environment. And so you, everybody in the whole office goes through these things. You get these profiles. Okay, here's where everybody lands. And they kind of related. The chart looked like dots, you know. And they, they, did, it to, um, to, they did it to be helpful to the culture. Well, that, that can be very wise and helpful to culture, but relating to people and putting them in a, relating to them like they're a set of dots is not helpful. In fact, it ended up having an opposite effect on the culture. And uh, you, because we like templates, okay, I need to be able to relate to this. I need to get everybody to kind of fit into a jig so I can be, you know, have some success and, and this kind of a thing. And it's more comfortable, but it isn't, it isn't wise at all to just kind of relate to people that way. What's your Myers-Briggs? What's your, what's your disc? What's your Colby? What's your, what Harry Potter house are you? Which Voltron line are you? Are you more of a Rachel or a Monica? Because once I know that, I can really fire on all cylinders. Proverbs is provoking this. Look at these words, prudence and knowledge and discretion and insight. Boy, that's like a, that's a, that's a, such, entering into each situation with a, with a love and a, and a humility. So, so what does wisdom require? If what wisdom looks like is that kind of nuance, and it does, as you kind of unfold some of those words through verses 12 to 14, what does wisdom actually require? Well, it requires humility. Uh, It requires the humility, specifically, the acknowledgement that there is a God that transcends us, and therefore his ways are faithful to guide us, even if his ways contradict us. So, When you look at verse 10, for example, wisdom is speaking, and Lady Wisdom says here, she says she's more important than gold and riches, anything you desire. She goes, there's nothing more important than me in terms of relating to life in a practical way. Verses 17, look at at the tone, right? Pursue me, fall in love with me. This is really important imagery that the scriptures are giving us because you've got this, you have this woman speaking to the reader, asking the reader to love her. Proverbs begins and concludes with the imagery of women. It begins with this lady, wisdom, this woman of virtue, and it ends with, I'm sorry, and then it moves on after this into long texts in chapter 9 about adultery, this adulterous woman. So it actually begins with this woman saying, love me, and then it moves on to a woman of vice, And then it gets to Proverbs 31, and it's a woman of virtue. And in between the woman of virtue and the woman of vice are hundreds of these little teachings. And they're all hundreds of little teachings provoking us to go, who do you love? What do you love? What is underneath 
If you pop the hood and look into your heart, what do you love? And that requires a wisdom. I'm sorry, that requires humility to be able to have an honest examination to, to, to prayerfully and thoughtfully kind of consider our hearts. So we can ask ourselves, yeah, what is it uh, that I love? The author is using this provocative language to recognize that's actually what's driving our decision-making. Uh, it's the appetites in our heart. It's not simply the decision-making faculties of our mind. The, listen to verses 8 and 9. All of the words of my mouth are righteous. There is nothing twisted or crooked in them. But how many times have we looked at the, uh, the scriptures and something kind of comes against the grain of what we feel is most natural and we kind of feel like this text should morph to me. But the text says, no, hold on a second. There is an adjustment that needs to be made, but it's not the God of wisdom that needs to make the adjustment. Verse 9 says, they're all straight to him who understands and finds knowledge. I love those who love me and I seek diligently those who find me. So we can't really love wisdom unless we consider our own capacities for loving foolishness. You can take a program as a student uh, thinking about moving forward in your, in your career and in your life. You can, you can take a, a program because you think it's going to be a good stretch of your gifts. You have an interest in this. You have skills and abilities in here. And it's something that is, you can glorify God with your gifts in this particular vocation. Or you can choose the same program because at the end of the day, you love, you love security and money. And somebody said, take that program. That's where the jobs are. And you're like, okay, well, I guess that's why I'll do it. I mean, on the surface, it look, kind of looks the same, two people going into two programs, but what's going on kind of on, under the hood? Or maybe you take a promotion at work because you're like, here's an opportunity to grow, uh, stretch my, my gifts and my abilities, use my vocation as a way of glorifying God with my skills. This is going to increase finances. I can bless my family with that. I can be a blessing to others with that financial increase, and you can make a very wise decision and take the promotion. Or... You can actually, underneath all of it, take the promotion and end up being stressful and anxiety and kind of wreck your, wreck your soul, but you do it because you love titles and you love acclamation, and this is a way of, of, of you know, feeling like, okay, I'm sick and tired of people calling me an assistant to the regional manager. I gotta, we're taking this thing. We've got to move forward. Both look the same on, on, the out, on the surface, but it's not really you know, necessarily one is not necessarily wisdom. So there requires humility. For us to consider our hearts that way. Verse 9 and 15 says, My words are straight to him who understands, right to those who find knowledge. By me kings reign and rulers decree what is just, right? The, 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 this, this idea of justice and what is just and right. See, to, to confess faith in God is to confess there's a pattern to the natural world. To confess, there's a, confess faith in God is to say there's one who transcends the natural order Therefore, he must have a wisdom that transcends the relational order. He must have a wisdom that transcends the societal and the civil order. So that's why it requires humility to say, well, if there's a God who created me there, then his wisdom must faithfully guide me. Even when I come across things in his wisdom that seem to be contradicting me. I got to bow my knee. When you read verses 22 and on, you get this vivid picture of wisdom speaking. And wisdom is saying, I was with the Lord when God made everything. Right? Before everything, I was there. He made, he made everything with wisdom. Right? And the implications of that, you've got this Trinitarian God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And they loved each other before anything existed. Therefore, everything that does exist spun forward out of that love. The world, the, the universe and the cosmos exists because it was God saying, let's share the love. 
And so, so wisdom for, from the, the one who created all things to the one who guides us is that we've got to be motivated by what is, by what is love. And what is love is what is wise. And so we see, we see in, in verses 22, if that wisdom was with God in the beginning, that everything, everything came to being out of, this, uh, out of this, this God of love. And if there is a God then wisdom is obviously aligning to his ways, and it would be foolishness to expect him to align to our ways. And there's a lot of pressure in the culture, and strong pressure in the church always, of course, in particular today in Canada, to say, man, the, the church has got to get with the times. But is that a good use of reason, really? I mean, if you're here this morning and you're exploring Christian faith and you're, you're wondering, you're considering about this God of the Bible and this Jesus Christ, the God who's come personified, and you're wondering, you're thinking, I don't know, there's these things that seem to grate against the culture. Shouldn't, doesn't it make more sense that the Bible just kind of shift and morph with the times? I'm arguing that makes no sense. I'm arguing that's a, that is not logical. Why, sh- if, there, if there is a God who spun the cosmos into existence, why should he get with our program? That doesn't make any sense. To me, it's, a, it's more consistently wise to say, no, I need to align myself to the wisdom of his pattern as, as he's given it, even those things that contradict me, even those things that ca- cause me to bend my knee. You know, um, Francis Collins is a, a scientist, a, a geneticist, and he wrote a book called The Language of God, and in it he talks about how for organic life to exist, the fundamental regularities and constants of physics that are needed are astronomical. You've got the speed of light and the gravitational constants and all these other strong and weak nuclear forces that are required. This perfect harmony following, in, following into this incredible range. He says, looking at the universe as a scientist, it looks as if the universe knew it were coming. Right? You've got 15 constants with precise values, and if any of those constants was off by one part in a million million, the universe would not have come into existence. Right? Stephen Hawking, in his book, uh, The History of Time, he concluded towards the end of his book with this. Hawking wrote, The odds against a universe like ours coming out of something like a Big Bang are enormous. I think that there are clearly religious implications. And elsewhere, Hawkins wrote, It would be very difficult to explain why the universe would have begun in just this way, except as an act of God who intended to create beings like us. And Alvin Plantinga, who's a philosopher, he said it this way, if you're playing poker with somebody and they get four aces, you're like, wow, it's amazing. But if the next hand they have four aces, you're not going to go, wow, it's amazing. And 50 hands later, they've dealt 50 hands of four aces, you're not going to go, wow, that's amazing. And if you play poker into the night and they keep dealing hand after hand after hand after hand after hand of four aces, you're not going to sit back stammered at the scientific probabilities. You're going to go, uh, you're doing something intentionally here. And Alvin Plantinga argues you cannot look at the intricacies of the cosmos, whether it's through a telescope or a microscope, and stand back and, and say, Wow. The universe has just continually handed itself aces. You see, wisdom requires humility. It looks like, wisdom looks like nuance and prudence and adjusting in situations, looking at Jesus who saved us in grace and saying, how can I now, not because I need to earn anything, because by his grace I'm already saved and accepted by God, but how can I live to the glory of my Lord of grace? That's what wisdom looks like, but it, that requires humility because that means I've got to bend my knee to the God of the cosmos. 
Because if the universe just handed itself aces, then you can just go home and decide what truth is for you and speak your truth and do your thing. But there is a God, and he does have wisdom, and his wisdom will cause your life to flourish. Because he didn't just create the natural order, but the social order. And so therefore, his wisdom will minister to your heart and to your mind, and you can trust him, church. You can trust him with your very life, because he's that good and he's that wise. There is a God who transcends you, and his worth and his word will, will faithfully guide you. And so you start working through Proverbs, and you start to discover what these divine patterns are, right? After this chapter that we just read, and on hundreds and hundreds of them. And they're all kind of giving us some insights into how things work. Do this, and it's going to go well. Do that, and it's not going to work well. But then you also get Proverbs that, that, that will say things like, hey, don't, don't start to believe in Christian karma. You know, don't become a, a religious moralist, a religious moralistic fool, and just think, hey, I'm, I'm just following the Bible and I'm trying to be wise and all of life is going to work out. Proverbs says, you know, there's, there's no room for Christian karma here. It actually provokes us to be, think, be thoughtful when life doesn't work out. When the thing that we're wondering is going to happen doesn't happen. When the thing we're hoping or praying for, it doesn't happen. Proverbs gives us wisdom and insight in a way that we can kind of relate to God like he's a loving father and not a genie. I mean... That kind of humility, it's going to transform the way that we pray. Most of us as North Americans do not pray. When you look at the New Testament prayers and you think about our prayers, there's actually quite a chasm there. Because the New Testament prayers are like, Oh God, change us. Give us boldness. Oh God, do a work in me. They all sound like that in the New Testament when Paul's praying for the church. Oh God, change. I pray that God would, that you would know the depths and heights of his grace. But our prayers are like, I need this on Tuesday at four. If he could do it, wow God, that'd be so good. And then it doesn't happen, and we're like, and we're all having existential faith crises because we're like, I don't know what God is doing. That's like, the, that's like the North American prayer tagline. North American prayer. We don't know what God is doing. But if we can just dial into his greatness, you don't understand the liberating freedom there is in your smallness because he loves you and he faithfully guides you in all things. You know, no, you know, no one proverb gives you, the pic, gives you the whole picture on any subject. You can't just read a proverb and go, ah, that's the one! And just put it on the fridge and be like, there it is! Because as soon as life doesn't align like that, you're like, I don't know what's happening to my bumper sticker theology is falling apart. What's with the Bible? I don't know if I can trust it. These proverbs, do you understand, they were... When they were given, they were studied in community. They were mulling them over in community. They were, they were actually becoming more wise as children of God as they kind of trusted God and talked about the wise guidance of his word in community. They went through suffering in community. They survived totalitarian Rome in community. The only reason the church is still here is because they just kept trusting this, this God of grace and gathering together and worshiping him in community. And that's why we can't just sit on our decks by ourselves outside of the church alone with a coffee, taking Instagram posts going, I'm getting more and more wise. No, you're not. You're in isolation, reading a thing and trying to figure out how life can go through that small lens. It requires tremendous humility. And that's why, that's why wisdom, she's crying out, she's saying, love me. Not intellectually assent to me. Love me. Well, that's a love. That's a big word. That requires this honest evaluation of what I actually love. But God will do glorious renewal in us, church, as we, as we, the same grace that scandalously saved you continually does this renewal and this 
freeing work in you to find the, the great hope and peace in this. Now think of it this way. Um, yeah, again, for those of you here, here, maybe you're exploring faith and you're and you're struggling because you're like, I'm looking out the window, I'm looking at the world. I'm here you, I hear you, preacher, you're talking about this wise God. I'm looking at this mess that is the world. <sighs> Firstly, in God's great grace, the, the end of the book, spoiler alert, is that he's going to restore everything. But in the meantime, while we're living here in the, in the day-to-day, your inability to understand why God would or wouldn't do something is not an argument against his existence. Your inability, your inability to think of a reason why God wouldn't do what you, what, you, what, you, what you say. You know, you pray for, I prayed for this thing, God didn't do it, I can't believe in God. Your inability to understand why God, you know, you can't think of a reason why he wouldn't answer your prayer doesn't mean no reason exists. You're, you're simply acknowledging your, that's simply an acknowledgement of your smallness. It's not an argument against his, his existence. I'm going to give you an example. The resurrection of Jesus Look at, at the cross. Everybody's like, this is the worst possible scenario. And in God's wisdom, they were looking at the best possible scenario. I mean, nothing, the cross couldn't have been the more opposite. Fools get crucified. Criminals get crucified. You know, there was like, history records, there was a number of messiahs, quote-unquote, after Jesus and before Jesus, something like, I, actually, I shouldn't give a number because I can't remember it offhand, but there was a number of them that, that claimed, you know, this kind of revolution for Israel, and they all, they, all, they all failed. They all, you know, were snuffed out by Rome, and they just looked like failed messiahs. Jesus just looked like one more. It's like the worst, they're like, this is the worst possible scenario. It was the best possible scenario. Because we don't understand the wisdom of God. God, through the cross, of course, not only saved us in grace, but that was the means by which he was going to renew all things by his grace, the promise of the restoration of all things, which in the meantime gives us great hope. So here's the final thing as we close. And it's to, to ask, how is wisdom formed? Well, we growing in the wisdom of God, it's not an academic exercise. It's a love affair. How will wisdom be formed in you? A love affair. Look at the language of the proverb. The one who formed you is the one that reforms you. The one who created you is the one that guides you. You look at, look at the language here. I'm going to unpack it in a second, but I'm going to borrow from this lady. Her name is Hannah Anderson. She's got a ministry uh, in Virginia. She works alongside her husband, in, uh, I think, in uh, church ministry in Virginia. She wrote a book called All That's Good. Here's what she says. The written word exists to reveal the living word. She's boring from Hebrews there, of course, but I just thought it was so succinct and beautiful. The written word exists to reveal the living word, right? Jesus Christ, the power and the logic behind nature. Jesus Christ, the exact image of the Father. Jesus Christ, the perfect revelation of goodness. Jesus Christ, the way things are supposed to be, right? The Hebrew writer echoes the truth, right, of Proverbs 8. And Hebrews, the Hebrew writer says, the Son is the exact expression of God who sustains all things through his powerful word. You know, wisdom is, is personified here. So here's the secret of the secret of wisdom is that God created the created the world in love and then he came in Jesus Christ to personify and embody that love to personify and embody that wisdom. Again, if you're here this morning and you've not placed your faith in Christ and you're saying, "Well, preacher, I need an airtight argument." God didn't send an airtight argument. He sent an airtight person. 
Jesus Christ. He sent it. He, he came. If you want to know God's wisdom, if you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. You look at his words, his deeds, his death, his resurrection. You look at his love. To look at Jesus is to look into the, the face and the perfection of God's wisdom. It's God's wisdom applied. I'm going to read verse 22 again. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, his first acts of old. Ages ago I was set up at the first, before the beginning of the earth. When there was no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water. Before the mountains were shaped or the hills, I was there. When he established the heavens, I was there. You know, every religion has a, has a leader saying, this is wisdom, do this and it'll save you. But in Christian faith, we've got Jesus saying, I am wisdom and I've saved you. At the time of the death and resurrection, the Greco-Roman world was obsessed with wisdom. Philosophy, two Greek words, phileo, sophia, phileo, love, sophia, wisdom, the love of wisdom. The, the Greek world was in love with his idea of wisdom. And John, making use of Proverbs 8, Jesus being wisdom of God, personified, John in his, in his protology, he writes this, In the beginning was the word, and the word in Greek is logos, which means logic, wisdom, the reason. John writes, in the beginning was the wisdom, and the wisdom was with God, and the wisdom was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the wisdom became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory, as glory of the only Son, of the Father, full of grace and truth. Turn to him, church. Turn to him, and he will revive you. Turn to him, and he will restore you. He will renew you. He will forge wisdom in you. Because growing in wisdom is not an academic exercise. It is a love affair. And by his grace, Jesus Christ has united himself to you. Let's pray.